0: Welcome, and we want to invite you to the book of Jonah this morning. Jonah, the first chapter of Jonah. If you're visiting this morning and I haven't gotten a chance to meet you or say hello, we want to say hello and uh, let you know that you're, you're our, our guest. We're glad that you're here. We trust that you receive a blessing by being here and that you are um, become more familiar with the Lord. And your walk with him is strengthened and your faith is strengthened for his glory and and by his grace. Jonah chapter number one, we continue our study through the book of Jonah as we do fairly regularly here at Grace as we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse and seek to find God's message to us. And God is speaking to us through his word and uh, uh, revealing to us a lot about his character Revealing to us a lot about our own character, and then giving us instructions on how we can walk uh, closely with him, how we can strengthen our, our walk with him and our relationship with him. One of the most challenging questions that we face as Christians, and, and really it's really fundamental to many um, who have become atheists from the Christian life, is the question, why is there so much calamity in this world? If God is a good God and God is a uh, sovereign God, which, which we as Christians would hold to, why is there so much um, calamity is the word that I use. Um, the scripture uses the word evil. It is uh, an interchangeable word. We'll look at that a little bit more thoroughly as we walk through it. But why is there so much evil in the world if God is, is, is truly good and God is, um, is truly in control? And to answer that question incorrectly is not, is not acceptable because what it leads to is it leads to, an, um, it leads to an undermining of God's character. People begin to see God as perhaps not caring. Uh, people begin to see God as uh, evil himself, the author of evil. And uh, when you answer that question wrong, you have to then deal with the consequences of answering that question wrong it doesn't only undermine god's character if we answer this question wrong but it also undermines the word of god if we can if we if someone can disprove the word of god in one case then they can they can ultimately consider the whole word of god to be flawed so it is so important that when we come to this question of why is there evil in the world why is there calamity in the world why is there um, bad things uh, happening to good people, per se, in the world going on today, why are these things happening? If we don't have an answer to this question, we then can um, participate in the undermining of God's word. And, and again, many atheists that have left the faith have left the faith on the basis of this question. Why is there? Why is this e- all this evil if God is in control and God is good? And so they even believe that God is God. They, they believe that if there is a God, he must be good and he must be in control. So what do they conclude? There must not be a God. And so that's why they go down that path. And so we're going to seek to answer that question. Job seeks to answer that question in his narrative that he gives us in in his word. And when we think about it from a more of a modern uh, sense, a, a today sense, we must consider and think about all of the sickness that goes around, goes on around us, the diseases that we face the last two years of of COVID that has uh, inundated um, our minds, our thinking, have, has caused us to really focus on this sickness and has uh, been the um, been the, the source of many people's passing away into eternity. It's not just that, but we have the war in Ukraine now where people are losing their lives on a daily basis because there's wars in this world. If God is good and God is in control, then why are there diseases and why is there war? We have to consider the weather. If You don't have to look too far, and we're, we're, we're thankfully not in the fire season right now, but we will be at some point and we ask ourselves the question, if God is good and God is in control, why does California face so many fires every year? Why do we have earthquakes and tornadoes, uh, tsunamis? Why do we have these things if God is good and God is in control? Why do we watch TV and we see third world, third world countries where babies have no food and their, and their stomachs are swollen and, and they, they, they paint a really horrible picture of it because it's a really horrible thing? Why are these things taking place? Why are these things happening if God is good and God is in control? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and none of these things have affected you, but you might have something else in your life that has happened, a storm, if you will, that has impacted or affected you. And you ask yourself the question, why have I gone through this experience? Why has God put this in my life? There must be a reason for it. There must be a purpose for it. Else we go to the realm of God not being in control or God not being good. Because God is in control and God is good all the time. So Jonah's narrative, not just Jonah's narrative, but it's interesting because really almost every narrative in the Bible deals with, with the, gives us an answer to this question. You've got Job, you've got Jonah, you've got Joseph, you've got Abraham. I mean, you could really go through the Scriptures and you can see this idea of why is there evil in the world being unfolded in front of us. You, you can't read a book of the Bible and not have this question somewhat dealt with. And Jonah is a narrative that gives us some... Um, information, if you will, in regards to his story as to why we suffer as human beings, why we go through trials and tribulations. So this morning, our focal focal point, our focus, will be in verse 17 down to verse number 16. Your outline that was passed out says to verse 17, but verse 16 is really the end of the chapter, the end of the thought or the theme. Verse 17 starts another thought or another chapter, and we'll look at that next week. But if you'll read along with me, beginning in verse 7 of Jonah 1, the Bible says, And they said to one another, these are the mariners that are in the boat, Jonah has the, the, The verse number four tells us that God has cast a storm upon the sea because Jonah is running from God. And the verse number seven, the mariners come together and they're trying to figure out how to solve this, how to solve this dilemma of the storm. And they say to one another, "Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us." And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Or in other words, the sea became more rough. The winds were increasing as as they tried to solve the problem through Uh, human effort uh, we'll see later through rowing harder and faster through throwing over everything that's in the boat onto the side so that the boat has less weight involved as they're doing all of these things they're trying to figure out how to calm this storm down and the storm just continues to be at worse and worse and worse right and we can we can we can relate to that can't we have you ever been in a, a relational storm? You've been in a financial storm? You've been in a physical storm? The more we try to solve it, the more it just seems to go downhill. And, uh, and that's what happens to Jonah as, a, as an example to us of, of, of self effort, if you will, or trusting in our own efforts when it comes to dealing with things that are beyond our pay grade. Amen? Lots of things in this life are beyond our pay grade. We just haven't figured it out yet. And, and, and the quicker we figure it out and we kneel down before the one who has created us and sustains us, then uh, the, the, the quicker the storm goes away. And that's what Jonah teaches us. One of the many lessons that Jonah teaches us. So as they're trying, again, they're getting rid of everything in the boat, lightening the load, hopefully that will help. Um, later they row faster, but the Bible says that every time that they tried more and more to control the situation, they made the situation worse uh, just for just for the sake of um, of a verse I wanted to share with you, turn with me to Isaiah. this is a verse I, I spoke yesterday at a conference on um, this same topic, and this verse was a part of my text and I, I just thought, you know this is a really helpful verse if anybody Anybody in here deal with having a, a unique um, battle with wanting to be in control of everything? Anybody in here? Wow, we have a pretty perfect church. <laughs> I saw some hands like, Ugh. we do, don't we? I was just, come, this verse came across in my Texas. I was um, teaching yesterday and I thought it was really powerful In Isaiah 45, and verse number 9, it says, and if if you read um, verses 5 through 7, you'll get an even deeper understanding, but he says this. I love this verse. It says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. In in other words, woe to him who strives with God, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, and this is the phrase that hit me your work has no handles. I just thought, what is he saying when he says your work has no handles? I think what Isaiah is trying to express to us is the fact that God's work isn't meant for us to be in control of it. It's not meant for us to be able to grab on. It's not meant for us to be able to answer every question that comes about. It's not meant for us to control it. It's meant for him to control it. He, he repeats this um, same phrase in Romans 9, where he says, who are you to, to argue back to God for, why, for how he has made you? And God hasn't made us to be in control of his creation. He's made us to kneel down to the one who is in control of creation. So if you're, a, if you're, a, if you're one of those people that has to be in control of everything, you need to write that verse down. And you need to say to yourself every time you need to be in control... Why didn't God make life with handles? Because he didn't do it for a reason. It's like one phrase that could change your life. <laughs> it's, it's a helpful phrase. Why didn't God make the world with handles? Right? Can you imagine just somebody going up into space and they take a picture of the earth and there's two gigantic handles on each side? That would be what we would want, right? But there's not. And our lives are not like that either. The world will teach us that it is that way, but the Lord teaches us over and over again in his word that the world is not made with handles. He goes on to say, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, that the sea will quiet down, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And there are many uh, theories um, on was was Jonah just being fatalistic? Was he just saying, "I'm I'm done"? You know, throw me into the sea and uh, you know, just be rid of me, or was he speaking, um, you know, biblically, understanding that he he had been running from God and God was and he was the fault. Um, so there's a lot of debate debate over that, and Jonah doesn't really seem to come to himself until chapter number two. So it's possible that he's. He is being somewhat fatalistic, like he does in chapter number four. He says in verse thirteen. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard, or the men rowed harder. They were already rowing to get back to the dry land that they could not, but they could not because the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, and we can just stop there and meditate for a moment because they they're they're starting to reach the goal, right? Had God said, hey, listen, they just threw all of their stuff overboard, that's good enough. Had, would they have reached the goal? They have just rowed harder than they've ever rowed before. These are great rowers. And they are putting great effort in, like we've never seen. Let's just let the storm go away. Would they have reached the goal? They would not have reached the goal, would they? Why would they not have reached the goal? Is that better? Got a little crackle there. We're going to get this figured out. Does not count against my time, by the way. <laughs> I've, I've, I've learned that when something like this happens, you just roll with it. <laughs> you, you don't try to act like it's not there because it's there. I think that's better. Thank you. <laughs> now, someone has to tell me where I was at. Just kidding. Um, so they, so. The goal is reached when they do what? Where they, where, they, where they toss him overboard, that's obedience, but where they cry out to God, right? So that's the state. The state is, is we've done everything in our power, we've thrown everything overboard, we rode harder than we could ever row before, and we finally have realized that we can't do it, right? We can't do it. And that's the state that God is pressing us into, He's pressing us into a state of we can't do it, and then when we get to that state, which I, I, I it is my opinion that very few Americans believe that they can't do it. I think the opposite would actually be true, where we have a, a way of figuring out everything. I had a, a friend of mine, uh, my brother actually, his his father-in-law. He had he literally, I mean. There are some people in this world that are in control of everything. This guy was, like, in control of everything. And my brother illustrated it like he said. He literally had, like, notes on the engine of his car that had, like, three steps that if something went wrong, these are three ways to figure it out. And that was how much he was controlling I anything. Mean, that, that was just a part, a small part, of how he de- kind of dealt with life. We're, we're not meant to be able to do these things without God's um, intervention or help. And maybe more than that, not even just his intervention and help, but, but I've often said this in my prayer, Lord, I don't need your help, I need you to take over. You ever been in that place before? Have you ever been in that place where you finally came to the point where you're like, okay, if I keep trying to fix this, it's just going to keep getting worse, and so, Lord, will you, will you not help me, but will you take over the situation? And he takes over. I think that's the Lord is often pressing us to that state where, we, where we, maybe we've exhausted all the things that we can think of to exhaust, and we're still, the, the storm has gotten worse. And we finally give it to him. And that's what he says here. He says, for you, O, uh, o Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows." And the verse sixteen is very redemptive. It's a, it's a it's a, it's the, the terms that are used here in the Hebrew describe somebody coming to a, a true faith in the Lord, true repentance, true transformation, and it really just it really dis, dis, displays for us what it looks like to be um, repentant. These men come to a place of conversion; they they get saved through this experience. But it's interesting that they they. Um, they, they note a few things, and I, I want to walk through it together. There are three times in this text that evil, the term evil is used. It's, it's, it's a, the, the Hebrew word is ra, and it means a number of different things. It means from the wickedness and the evil of a very, very horrible uh, people all the way down to the storm that's taking place here is called evil. It's a, it's a calamity. So you really have a large range for this term for evil in the Scriptures Uh, being used. And so you really have to look at context to understand what kind of evil is he referring to, to to understand what that is. I I want to talk specifically this morning about the evil of calamity. There's three evils here. The one is the Ninevites. The Bible says that they were evil. And that just meant that they were wicked people. They were evil people. They did not walk with the Lord. They lived in immorality. They lived in idolatry. All of these things were true about them. They were evil people. The second one is the storm is called evil. And the storm is not an evil like somebody's doing something evil. The storm is evil because it's something that happens to us that's negative. So we would look at it and say that's an evil thing. People look at um, Katrina and people would call that an evil thing. A storm is an evil thing. A trial is an evil thing. COVID is an evil thing, right? It's kind of how we look at things. And the scriptures agrees and confirms that that would be how we would, we would see it. And then the last thing that's seen as evil here is the, is the shipmen throwing Jonah into the sea. That's also seen as an evil act. And they cry out to God, please don't hold us accountable for this evil act. So their, their action, because they're throwing a man into the ocean. There's something about that act that is is helpful for us to understand and grow through. So I want to uh, focus in this morning on calamity, which is the middle, which is the storms, the trials, the the evil of those things, and and, um, just teach on that a little bit this morning. First thing, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, who is in control of calamity? Who is in control of calamity? The answer to the question is very simple. The Lord is in control of calamity. God is in control of this type of evil. God is in control of evil. So that's a, that's a, 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 a reality that we see really mentioned throughout Scriptures. It's not an easy, it's not an easy reality because we, we don't understand how God could be in control of evil and still be good, but I hope to answer that a little for you this morning. The Bible tells us in regards to calamity in verse number four that God was the one who hurled the great wind upon the sea. God was the one who orchestrated this storm for Jonah and the, and the people there in the boat to go, to go through. God is the author of those things. God is the orchestrator of those things. Although they might be seen by us as evil, there's a purpose behind them that is not evil. There's a motivation that God is working out, God is accomplishing that is not evil, but is, but is but rather is good. The Bible says it this way when he comes down to the end and the, the uh, mariners say, Lord, please do not hold us accountable for what we're about to do. He says, they, they say this, because you have done that which has pleased you. Very, very difficult to understand, but the the statement is simply this, Lord, you have put us in a situation that we would see as evil, and you have done it because it is pleasing to you to do. It is pleasing to God to put us through storms, difficulties, things that we would see as being evil. It is pleasing to God to put us through those things because of what it accomplishes in us. We must understand this this morning, that everything that happens in our life is that which is pleasing to God. God is orchestrating it, God is allowing it, or God is um, authoring it for a purpose for us, and it is pleasing to Him. Even the bad things that happen in our life are pleasing to Him. Psalm 115 and verse number 3 says it this way, Our God is in the heavens, He does everything that He Pleases. He does everything that he pleases. He tells us in Psalm 145 that the Lord does everything he pleases with the things that are in heaven and also the things that are on the earth. In Daniel 4 and verse 35, the Lord says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the heaven, the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And who can stand and say to him, what have you done? God does as he pleases. God does as he purposes. God does as he sees as his most fitting and most right in the situations and the circumstances that we are in. There are, there are three categories here in which God is in control of. Evil. Evil. Three categories here that which God is in control of evil, and God, and God in that evil, meaning calamity or evil as evil, that God is in control. Number one is calamity or evil without a redemptive purpose, and we see this in the sin of the Ninevites. This is sinfulness, this is the type of sinfulness that dominates the whole world. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is a sinfulness that does not have a redemptive purpose. God is in control of sinfulness that does not have a redemptive purpose. All of the sinfulness that's taking place in the world around us today, all of the evil that's happening is under God's control. Satan himself is under God's control. Satan has to go to God to get permission to do anything that he wants to do. Romans chapter number one tells us that God gives us over to our sinfulness. What does that tell us? It tells us that if God doesn't give us over to our sinfulness, we will sin less. Second Thessalonians chapter number two, the Bible tells us that God is the restrainer of our sinfulness. The reality is is that we and Satan are, 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 what the Bible tells us, is we are totally depraved. And the reason why we don't live out our total depravity is because God restrains us from doing so. Man is evil to the core, but God restrains in his grace and in his kindness and in his love, God restrains that evil. Because God is ultimately in control and, and utterly in control. But with that in mind, and we look throughout scriptures, we see on several occasions where, where people were wanting to do evil and God actually prevented them from doing evil. What we know is is that God can prevent evil from happening, and if God can prevent evil from happening, but yet He doesn't, then there must be a purpose for there must be a purpose for evil. If God can stop evil, and how many of us believe God can stop evil? I mean, it's really a no-brainer if you read your Bible. If God can stop evil and yet chooses not to, he must have a reason for allowing it. He must have a purpose for it. So there is calamity that is without a redemptive purpose, and this type of calamity or evil, God allows the Bible tells us in James 1, 13 through 15, let no, let no one say when he, have, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to, to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So God, God is not motivating sinfulness God is not tempting man with sin, but it does not mean that God does not have a purpose for evil in the world around us. And I would submit to you that the main purpose that God has for what what I would call um, sin that has no redemptive purposes is is to defend God's character of justice. In other words, the Bible says in Romans 9.22, if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In other words, listen to me, think about this. What God is doing by being patient with the wicked is he's allowing them to build up a a great reason for their judgment. The Bible calls it in Romans 1, That um, uh, actually not in Romans 1. In Romans 1, it talks about that they will be without excuse. In another passage of Scripture, it talks about that they are heaping up to themselves. They are piling sin and evil on top of, it, of itself. The issue is this, God allows the evil of man, and even in Romans 1, he, he allows them to be more and more and more evil, so that when he judges them on Judgment Day, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, you will have no excuse, you will have no reason or no argument for why you are being condemned for eternity. In other words, it's, it's, it's interesting, because what God is doing is he's defending his justice by allowing mankind to become so evil that when he judges them, they will... And listen, when he judges them forever, I'm not talking about, oh, you get 10 days in prison. When he judges them, the wickedness of this world will get so bad that when judgment day comes and God says to them, depart from me into everlasting fire, he will be justified and they will have no excuse. You see, that's how much God cares about his character being presented well, that he gives us the whole book of Revelation that describes how evil man gets and how evil man gets and how evil man gets so that the day that they stand before him on Judgment Day, they will never be able to say, I wasn't so evil that I didn't deserve what you gave me. That's evil. That's the essence of evil. So the first type of evil that we, that we see God is in control of is the evil that is non-redemptive. There's no redemptive purpose to it. It is an evil that God allows but doesn't orchestrate. It is an evil that God does not participate in in regards to tempting man to do it. It is a evil that God allows so that man expresses the fullness of their depravity And then God ultimately judges them. Number two, it is the calamity for instructive purposes. This is is the storm that Jonah is facing here. This is war, pestilence, disease, and famine in the world that we live in today. Okay, whatever you're, and it may be even more things. It may be other things. But the Bible tells us that God sends war, that God sends pestilence, that God sends disease, That God sends famine. He's in complete control of these things. He sends them to us. He sends them to us. He is the author of them. We would call them evil. So in this sense, God is the author of evil. Because he is sending something to us. He is orchestrating or authoring something to us that, that is evil in our minds. There are several reasons why he does this. Number one is it's a consequence for our actions. He sends these things as a consequence for our actions. The Bible says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It's a consequence. Romans 1-18, the Bible says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is a consequence for our actions. It is a consequence for our actions. It is clear in Jonah 1, verses 7 down to verse number 10, it is clear that Jonah and the men that are in the boat understand that the reason they're in the situation that they're in is because of whom? Well, isn't it? Didn't God send it? The reason they're in the situation they're in is because God sent it and Jonah was in sin. It's 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 twofold. Jonah was guilty. And there's no questioning that. This text makes it very clear in many ways to unfold to us that Jonah was guilty and deserving of this storm. And we're all guilty. The Bible tells us, for all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's not the wages of, of some people's sins. It's the wages of all sin. The price for sin is death. It is condemnation. It is not only to, to die physically, but it is to die eternally. It is to be separated from God in a place called Hell. God sends storms in our life he orchestrates storms in our life he orchestrates difficulties and challenges in our life as a consequence for our sinful actions matter of fact folks the reality of it is is there is no storm in this world without genesis chapter number 3 there is no famine in this world without genesis 3 there is no disease in this world without genesis 3 There is no wars in this world without Genesis chapter number. There is no addictions in this world without Genesis. There is none of that. It is all the result of fallenness. So it is a result, it is a consequence for our actions. Genesis 2, Jesus, uh, the Lord says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely... And, And they did. So evil, in this sense... Of calamity is a result of, is a consequence for our actions. It's not only a consequence for our actions, but it's God also teaching and nurturing his children. Job is a good example of this. The disciples are a good example of this. The Lord says in in James chapter number two count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you face various difficulties, count it joy when you face various difficulties because these difficulties are going to to produce in you patience and perseverance and all of these other things. Trials and tribulations are not always consequences, they are ways to mature us, they're ways to grow us because of the consequences of our sin, right? The reason why we need to grow is because we've fallen backwards and that's because of sin. But trials are meant to, to change us. They're meant to, to, to mold us into the image of Christ. We would all agree and I think say um, affirmingly that Christ's life was epitomized by suffering. Right, The life that he has called us to, he even tells us in Peter, he says, these things I've called you to, that you would, be, that you would suffer. And not, not that you would just suffer, but you would suffer like Jesus suffered. These are the things that are molding us into the people that we are to be. I said this yesterday in our conference that God sends a lot of events into our lives um, uh, events, people, whatever might be the case, and, and that on one side of that event, it's a temptation. It's a temptation to fail, It's a temptation to quit, it's a temptation to lust, it's a temptation to, to be angry, it's a temptation. On the other side, it's a trial. It's a trial to say no to temptation. It's a trial to say no to anger. It's a trial to say no to to failure. It it is the, the, the very thing that destroys many is the very thing that builds many. It's the things that we go through that are temptations that God ultimately is allowing or meaning for us to grow into the people that God wants us to be. That's why he says, count it all joy when you face various temptations, because it's going to grow you. And he uses that interchangeable word for trials and temptations, interchangeable words. Why? Because temptations and trials are the same thing. If something isn't a temptation for you, it is not a trial for you. If it's not difficult, if you're not struggling with it, it's it's not really a trial, is it? The temptations that you face are the very things that God is meaning for you to grow by. He will make you into the man. that We think of temptations as all these other things, but the reality of it is, is you put your kids, if you're a parent, you put your kids through temptations all the time. You know what you call them? You call them trials. But think about it. When you tell your kid to do something, you're tempting him to do what? To disobey. He has the option. Satan says, don't do what your dad said to do. That's what happened in the garden, isn't it? God put in front of Adam and Eve a very pleasing tree. And he did it so that they would choose him all the time. Do you know what Satan introduced into that? That was a trial, wasn't it? It was a trial that Adam and Eve could grow. You know what Satan did with it? He turned it into a temptation. So that Adam and Eve would fail. God is growing us. And what he's doing is he's putting things in front of us that have two have two very opposite responses. One is to fall flat on your face and fail. One is to grow into the man or the woman that God is want, wanting you to be. But it's the same story. It's the same event. Job is a good example of this. His wife tells him to curse God and die. Is that a trial or is that a temptation? It's a temptation. Why did she tell him to curse God and die? Because God had caused all of this turmoil to take place in Job's life. Do you know what that was? It was a trial. Every trial has an equal temptation to it. The way that you respond to it determines whether or not it's a temptation or a trial. God is growing us into the people that he wants us to be. And he uses difficulties to accomplish it. He uses trials to accomplish it. Um, let's go on. The, the, the last one in this point is calamity that has redemptive purposes. And this is the casting of Jonah into the water. The casting of Jonah into the water was was evil. They asked the Lord, don't hold this evil against us. We're going to cast this guy into the water. He's going to die. That's, that's what they fully, they fully believed that they were murdering Jonah. Right? What resulted from Jonah being cast into the sea? Okay, let's think about it. Storm calms down, doesn't it? God provides a Savior. Mariners all get converted. Who else gets converted? Jonah gets converted, doesn't he? I don't think in a salvific way, but I think in a restorative way. Jonah gets converted. Who else gets converted? Nineveh gets converted. A lot of conversions taking place in this story because the evil that was done had a redemptive purpose to it. And we see this all throughout scriptures, that there are evils that are done that are redemptive in nature. Joseph in in Genesis, how many things happened to Joseph that we would say were evil? He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. They hate him. They're jealous of him. His boss accuses him of committing adultery with his wife, throws him into prison for a season. He goes through all of these difficulties and struggles, and we would all call them evil. And the Bible says to us in Genesis chapter number 50 and verse number 20 that your brothers meant evil against you, but God meant good. Good. It doesn't say that your brothers meant evil for you, but God turned it into good. It says that your brothers meant evil to you by these very actions, but God meant good to you by these very actions. It means that God had a purpose for the evil actions that took place in Joseph's life to bring him to a place where he would bring redemption to people. And if you have a problem with that this morning, then you have a problem with Jesus being put on a cross by the foreordained. Plan of God by an evil act of man to bring redemption to mankind. Because Jonah is the picture of Jesus. And Jesus was cast outside of the camp and he was hung on a cross for your sins and my sins by wicked, evil Roman soldiers. And Jonah was cast into the sea by evil, wicked mariners. The end result was what? Lots of people were redeemed. God is the author of evil that has redemptive purposes. Where he is working out something that is of a redemptive nature. We see this in Pharaoh's hardening in in the book of Exodus. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he allowed, uh, through his hardening, he was able to show them ten or give them ten plagues. I think sometimes we miss the point that God sent ten plagues to the Egyptians for the reason of convincing the Israelites that it was he who was delivering them God's judgment on the Egyptians wasn't a judgment that wasn't motivated by God's goodness everything that God does is motivated by his goodness but he brings great hardship on the Egyptians. Why? Because he is teaching and convincing the Israelites that it is I who am delivering you. Do you think after 10 plagues they would question, after the 10 miraculous things that happened to the Egyptians, do you think the Israelites would question whether or not God was the one delivering them? And if you say no, you'd be wrong because then they'd say, we want to go back. So even with that very convincing evidence that this was God's work, the Israelites wanted to go back. Imagine what would have happened if there were no plagues. You see, it was God's act of redeeming his people that caused him to bring about evil or judgment or whatever you would want to see it as on the Egyptian people. It had, it had a redemptive purpose. Revelation, we've been going through it in, in some of our community groups and, and have finished it now, is a book that deals with that very thing. That God brings judgment after judgment after judgment for the purpose of redeeming his people. Um, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says God is not slack concerning his promise that some men count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that I am allowing you to suffer greatly because it is through the suffering that you're going through, through the evils that are happening to you, that I am allowing to take place, that you will be redeemed. And I'm not willing that any will perish. So I am very, very patient. The reason the Lord hasn't returned today is because he's very, very patient and there are people that are still being saved and still needing to be saved. And our job is to go out and preach the gospel and share the truth with them. The Bible says it, says it this way in Acts 2.23 about Jesus. And Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was predetermined and predestined that this was going to happen. And it says, and you had crucified him and killed, killed him by the hands of lawless men. Orchestrated divinely by God. Number three, what is the cause, what is the cause of calamity. What is the cause of calamity? Let me just go through these very quickly here. Number one, humanity is guilty and deserving of calamity. Jonah is unquestionably um, identified in the text as being guilty or the reason for the calamity. Number two, humanity is broken and needs help Humanity is broken and needs to be taught lessons. We need to grow into the image of Christ. And number three is humanity is fallen and needs to be redeemed. Let me say those again if you didn't get them. Man or humanity is guilty and deserving of calamity first and foremost. Number 2 is mankind or humanity is broken and needs God's help which comes through calamity or at least their need for help is also is often revealed through calamity. And number 3 is man is fallen, humanity is fallen and need God's needs God's redemption which comes through this calamity. Was the storm worth it for Jonah? I think the answer is yes. Was the storm worth it for the mariners? I think the answer is yes. Was the storm worth it for the Ninevites? The answer is yes. The storm was worth it for all of them because of the redemptive purposes that the storm had. There's something that God is working. There's something that God is doing. And it's always good, even though it may come across, and it may be that God uses difficult circumstances to accomplish it what is the solution for calamity what is the solution this is our final thought well then we'll we'll look at finally the 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 um purpose but what is the solution real quick listen to me very important when jonah was thrown off the boat that was the solution right it's very simple Jonah was thrown off the boat, and that was the solution. What does Jonah represent? In this, in this context and in this narrative, what does Jonah represent? He represents sin. Jonah is the sinner. We know that they were all sinners, but Jonah is a picture of sin here. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, he takes upon, him, he takes upon himself all of our sin. He is a, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us, Right? And where there is sin, there is consequences, there is storms, there are all of these things because sin is what causes these things. Genesis 3 is what brought all of these things about. So the only solution to dealing with the the storms, the only uh, solution to it is to get rid of sin. So when they cast Jonah out of the boat, it gets rid of the sin and the storm immediately calms down. The interesting thing about that truth is is that Jesus Christ was cast out of the city. He was hung on a cross. He was a representation of sin for all of of those who believe, for all of mankind who would believe and trust in him. He represents for us sin. And when he's hung on a tree, sin sin is dealt with, right? Sin has been paid for in full. Sin has been removed. The power of sin, Romans 5 through 7, the power of sin, the curse of sin, the control of sin, all of it has been destroyed and defeated because Jesus Christ dealt with it. When Jonah was thrown off the boat and immediately calm came into the, into the situation, it was a result of sin being removed. And our sins can be, you're, you may be going through a storm in your life right now, a difficulty, a challenge, and the storm can, can, can go away. The challenge can go away as you deal with your sin. And you say, Pastor John, how do, I, how do I deal with my sin? It's not by throwing anybody over the boat. It's by embracing the one who was thrown over the boat. It's by embracing Jesus. The Bible says if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us. he he will cleanse us from all unrighteousnesses and there will come about us. It doesn't mean that there won't be storms in our life, but there will come about us a peace. There will come in us a comfort, a deliverance that will take place in our hearts that will cause our lives to be at peace. It doesn't mean that the world is not going to be stormy around us, but what it does mean is that in us we will have a peace because we have been made one with Christ. And our sins have been paid for and dealt with, and therefore, as that relates, there is no need for storms. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin. Jesus, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be satisfied. The the consequences of sin must be satisfied for the turmoil to go away, for the storm to disappear, for the tribulations and the trials to go away. Sin must be be dealt with and it's only dealt with in the cross it's only dealt with by Jesus Christ the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 7 I'm going to turn there because I um, didn't write I didn't uh, put down both verses here and I want to read them to you you're familiar with them as I start reading them you'll probably recognize them 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13, it says this. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, and these are all things that God does. He says, when I do these things, not if I do these things, but when I do these things, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their lands. What is the promise here? The promise is, is if we deal with our sins, the storm will calm. If our sins are dealt with, the storm will calm. And our sins are only dealt with through Christ if you're taking notes here, sin is dealt with by repentance and faith, signified by the throwing of Jonah over the boat, obeying God, trusting God, and putting themselves in God's mercy. Notice this that when they threw Jonah over the boat, they didn't, they didn't demand the Lord to deliver them, they asked the Lord to deliver them. Do not hold us accountable for what we're about to do. That's forgiveness. They asked the, the same way that the thief on the cross said, Lord, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew what he deserved, but yet he asked for mercy. And this is the same thing that these men ask for. The purpose of calamity in the end, the restoration and redemption of God's people. That is the purpose of it. God's purpose for all of the trials and tribulations that we face is he is restoring or redeeming a people through uh, Trials and tribulations and heartache, like Jonah, restoration and redemption for all the others. But without these trials, we do not experience the redemption or the restoration that God is trying to put us to, to accomplish in us. He tells us in John, in Daniel 9 24, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Daniel 9:24 is a single verse that describes the entire book of Revelation. That God did prophesied that through all of the things that took place in in Revelation that God would bring an end to sin, to evil, to all of these things and he would bring back his people to himself. And that is what God is doing today. So I hope and pray that you'll consider this as you go through the trials and tribulations in your life, that you'll, you'll think about God being in control of them. In the moment God... Takes Job's situation, which is a, a, a year, approximately a year of the most horrific challenges, and he literally speaks a word and they're all gone. That's God. He's in control of it. But you would consider why it happens. What is God doing? Think about those types of things. What is God doing in my life? What is God teaching me? Solution for it is what? Work harder. Clean out everything that you have, you know? Clean your closets out. Is that what it is? Is that the solution? The solution is is to fall down before the one who has created you and to pray to him for mercy. The end and the purpose is that you might be restored or redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for... Thank you for the storms that you put us through in life. Let us us see your purposes, see your plans, experience your mercy through them, and your grace. We pray that you would bless this remainder of the day and all those who are here. In Jesus' name.